Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in for Michael. Michael will be back with you in the hot seat next week. Now, a busy program between now and 11 a.m. If you do want to get in touch, our LMFM text WhatsApp number is 86 658 or you can give us a call on 041-9832-000. Now, as you know, yesterday we brought you the story of the taxi man operating in Drogheda who ended up being assaulted after he intervened to try and stop a fight at the rank on uh, Peter Street last Sunday morning. Now, a video of that assault was circulated on social media and our coverage yesterday provoked a, a very strong reaction. Now, we've been speaking to the taxi man who was assaulted. It turns out that this was the second time in five years that he was assaulted for literally doing his job. We're about to hear what happened in the early hours of last Sunday morning, but more so we want to highlight the, the dangers and the hazards that taxi operators go through every night when people get into their cars, in particular when the people getting into the cars are basically monsters with drink on them. And we should point out that at the end of the day, taxi operators are just trying to earn a living. They have mortgages to pay, car loans to honour. They too have children to raise and no more than the rest of us. They are simply working to earn a living and pay their bills. Now, we're referring to the taxi man here by his first name only, which is Paul. And I should add that this matter is being investigated by the Gardaí and Drogheda, even though Garda Press at the Phoenix Park in Dublin told us earlier in the week that no such complaints had been made on the matter. Now, for obvious reasons, we are not identifying the individuals who carried out the assault, as this matter is now in the hands of the Gardaí. Paul came into studio yesterday, and I began by asking him to describe what happened in the early hours of Sunday morning last weekend. I was coming down Peter Street uh, to look for a fire, and I stopped at the front of the rank, picked up uh, two males and a female. And um, 
they got into the car. I was asking them where they were going, and I heard a girl scream, and she came down. And as I was pulling away, as he shut the door, she clamped her hand onto the door handle, forced me to stop. Um, she opened the door and she wanted, uh, she spoke to the guy in the back to, to bring the other guy, not to leave him on his own. He was only after being involved in some sort of scuffle. He was bloodied on the face. And um, they didn't say much. But uh, I didn't want to carry someone bloodied. And um, she turned her attention to me um, and asked me to take him. And I, and I thought about it for a second and I just, I said no in the end up. And she kept asking me why over and over and over. It got more heated. And... Um, after about five to seven minutes, I, I roared, roared at her to get out of my car. I needed to continue my job. And uh, she um, turned round and punched me uh, two to three times in the car, knocked my specs off me. Um, I was seat belted in, in the front and um, she kept at me and said, and um, when she dropped her phone as she punched me and then I grabbed her phone thinking it might alleviate something but it totally went against me and I got about another 20 odd punches uh, in the back of the head and the side of the face hence uh, I ended up with marks on my nose and my uh, cheek Right, so you were assaulted about, what, 20 times in the car, and then what we saw on the video was what happened outside the car. Talk us through that. Correct. The guy um, threatened, the guy that was bloody threatened to kill me, so I got out to confront him, and um, he ended up, he was he was fine, and um, uh, next minute I got... What I thought was one punch, but when I seen the video, it was two. Uh, I got them on the blind side, and um, she gave me two good cracks. Um, so, basically then, you got assaulted outside the taxi. What sort of pain were you in? Um, I had a pretty painful jaw for several hours because of teeth missing. Is it true that this is not the first time you, as a taxi driver, have been assaulted? Yes, it's true. Um, five years ago, I drove a train station. Um, um, I fractured finger, a broken tooth, gash in my mouth, and I had two badly torn tendons in my left shoulder, which I sub- subsequently got uh, surgery for. And what were the circumstances by which that happened? Um, I asked the guy not to drink in my taxi and stopped the car. He got out and um, he drank the the can of beer at the side of the car and then eventually got back in and coming out across the ramps in the train station, he punched the roof of the car and I just said, end of ride. And um, 
it's they snatched the keys of my car and it ended up I uh, tried to defend myself and they uh, punched the life out of me Right, so this is not the first time this has happened to you but uh, going back to the video that's been circulated on social media of the assault you had to endure what happened after that? As in, you know, were the Gardaí called? Was there an ambulance? What was I the found the Gardaí, so I did. And um, they came after several minutes. And um, I approached one guard and I said, um, you need to arrest this girl. She's the instigator of the whole thing. And um, to which they then arrested her. With, with our friend. And have the Gardaí been in touch with you since to explain where the case is going from here? I made a statement um, shortly after that and um, charges are going to be made, um, proceeded with. Okay. I want to talk to you about the, the, the wider issue. I mean, you say this is the second serious assault that you've endured for doing nothing more than your your, your daily job. Um, is it true that, in fact, you uh, had a position on one of the taxi ranks in Drogheda and things got so violent that you decided to leave Drogheda completely? I have. I've left Drogheda completely because um, many times um, over the years working in Drogheda, I, I decided um, I'm going home instead of dealing with... Um, antisocial behaviour. Antisocial behaviour. And um, I don't have that issue where I'm working now, more house to house. And on this particular occasion, is it true that you happen to be in Drogheda on duty as a taximan, more so by accident rather than by plan? It was by accident, it wasn't. Um, I ended up, um, I brought my partner home and um, from Dublin. And it's the only reason I ended up back in Drogheda. And it was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly. How widespread is assault on taxi operators, not only in Drogheda, but indeed beyond Louth and Mead? It's it's quite widespread. I mean, there's a lot of... I suppose there's a lot of arguments in taxis that you don't hear of. And is this over disputed fares or over the fact that somebody gets into a taxi uh, drunk and is not prepared to pay or in some cases doesn't yes. actually have the money and tries to get out of the back seat as quick as possible and do, as they say, a runner? Not so much the money, but um, uh, they um, just, it's all drink-related. It's all drink-related. And would you know of many taxi operators who've been subjected to assault by, if you like, difficult customers? Yes, there would be several out there. So this is a problem for all taxi operators? For all taxi operators, yeah. And would the taxi community be satisfied, for example, with the amount of guard the cover at taxi ranks? No, that's the one thing I was... Um, speaking to someone this morning about it if if there was presence in the likes of the Tholsel where the gathering is just just standing there and up at the fair green and maybe in the centre 
just for that hour that the, the town empties very quick once once the taxis come in it, it's very quick to empty that town so, what is mm. so you're basically saying that if there was a guard of presence uh, the outcomes might be different totally different yeah. Can I ask you, in light of the experience you went through with this assault and the subsequent transmission, I suppose is probably the appropriate word, of the video on social media, how are you feeling? Um, um, are you depressed? Are you upset? It's, it's, are you it's, stressed? It, it, is, it, it does affect... I have to say the first one absolutely affected me, but this has just brought it back. And it's just. Have you been stressed by the whole experience over the last number I of have days? Been, I have been stressed about it. I've, I've had pains in my head, neck, uh, shoulder sore from the from trying to fend them off. And has it in any way made you rethink as to whether or not you should continue on as a taxi operator? Um, it hasn't really. Um, you do have to try and judge people in that split second. Like, I passed them on the rank. I didn't want to pick them up, so obviously I've, I have I wasn't comfortable stopping with them, hmm. But and I went and picked somebody else who looked... Yeah. Like a lot quieter. And what would your view be about the fact that somebody recorded this on their mobile phone and then circulated it on various social media sites? I I, I guess it's a good thing to see that uh, people see what taxi drivers do have to put up with. So you have no issue with uh, a video like that being circulated because it exposes to it the expo- wider public it, it exposes, the difficulties yeah. that you guys have to go through day in, day out. Yes. Okay. And um, I guess on um, about, uh, like, we got a, a 12% in the taxi industry as a, as a rise to cover working uh, as an incentive for night shift. But um, no 12% would make me uh, want to work nights. And so nighttime working is quite dangerous and hazardous. It's quite dangerous. And a lot of t- drivers do go home uh, and no 12% is going gonna, is gonna to make them come out. I think the new opening times is going to absolutely frizzle all that out. I think drivers will come back. I think that there is plenty of taxis just are refusing to work at night. All right. Well, look, thanks very much for coming in. We hope you're okay, and uh, we'll see how this pans out in the uh, the weeks and months ahead. Thanks, Ken. There you go. That's our taxi driver, Paul, who came in yesterday revealing uh, the assaults he uh, endured last weekend. We can't really expand on this because the issue is now in the hands of the Gardaí, but our sympathies go out to the taxi community, whether they be in Drogheda, Dundalk, Navan, Trim, Kells, Ashbourne, wherever they are, uh, and we're basically saying that if you get into a taxi, please show respect. If you want to get in touch or make a comment uh, on that interview, our text number, WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658 OK, more to come, we'll take a break 
Now, a third of people below the poverty line last year were actually in work, with many of them having college degrees. Now, lone parents and part-time workers are particularly at risk of poverty, and tenants are also facing a higher risk than homeowners after private rents soared by, would you believe, 84%. 84% since 2012. And a study by the ESRI think tank today reveals the scale of deprivation and poverty in Ireland. To tell us more, I'm joined on the line right now by Dr. Barra Rontree. He's an economist with the Economic and Social Research Institute. Uh, first of all, Barra, uh, how bad is the situation out there? So, uh, generally speaking, it's actually pretty good, right? We've had falling income inequality now for many, many years, and, that, and, and likewise, income poverty has also been falling, and that's the result of quite broad-based growth. We've seen actually incomes grow at the bottom of the distribution but by more than they have at the top or even the middle. But really then what I suppose goes alongside that is what we've seen is that really rapid rise in rent. So as you say, rents have almost doubled since 2012. And what that is doing is putting a huge squeeze on housing affordability for private renters in particular. So those tend to be younger, those tend to be uh, kind of not actually the lowest income. Um, People in the lowest incomes often qualify for social housing or for HAP. But it's really those who are exposed to the private rental sector, and so that's particularly young adults, have been seeing a squeeze in terms of housing affordability. Uh, You make the point that a third of people below the poverty line actually have college degrees. I mean, what's happening here? I mean, there was a time, you know, you were told that if you had a university degree, it was like a passport to a very, if you like, comfortable living for the rest of your days. Is it that uh, the the workplace has become crowded with degrees? Is it that the trade union uh, community has lost their influence? Or is it that there's just so many educated people in this country Country, uh, that uh, employers are pushing down wages because they know that if they refuse you and you have a university degree, there's always somebody else knocking on the door who's prepared to do it cheaper. Or what else have you found in that area? Yeah, so, so really, you know, really what it's about is that we're now as a country more educated than ever before. You know, we've seen rapidly rising rates of uh, uh, higher education. And because of that, even though they face a much lower risk of poverty than other groups, than people without university degrees, than people who are out of work, what you see is that uh, those um, who have someone in paid work still make up about a third of those under the poverty line. And, and so really where that comes about is where maybe you have someone who has, you say, as you mentioned, a university degree, but they're not in paid work. Um, sorry, so they're, they're in low, lower paid work, uh, maybe working part-time. And so that's kind of where that comes about. But, but actually what we can point out in our report is that this is kind of, whereas this has been rising in places like the UK, you know, their in-work poverty rates have really been increasing in recent years and they make up now an increasing share of the poor. In Ireland, that's not really the case. Again, it is a third, so it's a big group, but it's not, a, 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 the poverty rate for those people have not been, has not been rising. So really, actually, again, it, it, it's a subtler story kind of around, well, again, we have seen income poverty and income inequality falling in Ireland in recent years. The groups that we really point to as kind of facing particular risk of poverty are, are those kind of in private rented accommodation, our lone parents, uh, and those in households where there's no one in paid work. Um, in terms of the poverty level, what is classed as the, if you like, the the level of income that one must have to be above the poverty line, or if you're below a particular income level, it's classed as being in poverty? What What, what figure are we talking about? Yeah, so, so the way that poverty is defined and there's kind of the national definition and the one yours, also by your stat, is kind of a relative one, right? So it, it, do you live in a household with less than 60% of the income of the person in the middle of the, of the distribution, so the, the, the median income? And so what that leads to then is for a single adult, it means that 
having income of less than about 20,000 uh, uh, 20, or so a year. Um, and, and that's kind of what we talk about when we talk about poverty. Now, we also talk about, uh, because we can, people recognise that that's not necessarily, you know, uh, a, 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 a definition that I suppose is going to ca- capture everyone. There's also what we call material deprivation. And that's about not being able to afford two or more items from a list of 11 that the, the Central Statistics ask pe- Office asks people about, uh, kind of essentials, and say, well, if you can't afford two or more of these essentials, then you're going to class as materially deprived. So there's kind of two different ways of looking at this. We look at both of those in our report. Actually, again, what you do see in terms of overall, those rates are going down, both in terms of income poverty and in terms of material deprivation. But again, the groups that we, there, there are some groups who kind of have, have been a persistently higher risk of both material deprivation, but also income poverty. And it's those lone parents, it's, it's, it's your, your private renters, and it's, um, it, it's those living in a household where there's no one in paid work. Um, can I ask you, did you explore, you know, this ongoing debate between what's the minimum wage and the so-called living wage? Some people might say there's actually no difference. Uh, the politicians might argue there is a difference. Uh, and whether or not the rate of pay that working class people are being paid uh, to do particular jobs uh, can actually be sufficient to live in a modern country where the cost of living has gone out of control? Yeah, so what we've looked at this and kind of one of the points I suppose we make is that, again, the vast majority of those who are below the poverty line or yeah, are, are not in paid work. So in a way, the minimum wage doesn't directly affect them. It, it might if they're moving to work. And then, you know, you can think about the extent to which uh, a high minimum wage is important for ensuring that pe- people uh, want to be in paid work and that it pays to be in work. Um, but really kind of what we point to is actually that a lot of the people, even those who are in work but below below the poverty line, they're working kind of part-time jobs. Uh, and that might be by choice or it might be not by choice. It might be because those are the only hours that they can get. So what we kind of actually point to is that there really is maybe a role. If, if poverty reduction is your focus and um, deprivation reduction is your focus, really what you might want to kind of look at is kind of part, more so the welfare system. So we have, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, a, a payment called working families payment. That's available to low-income uh, families with children um, if, you work, if they're working more than 19 hours a week. Um, that's not currently available to lower-income uh, uh, couples or singles without kids. And so from that point of view, that's something which we, we, we and others, uh, with the SRI and others in, uh, in other organisations have pointed to as something which might be expanded if, if one's goal is to really kind of reduce poverty and deprivation because that's the kind of group that aren't really affected by the minimum wage. So, you know, increases to minimum wage uh, benefit a, a large swathe of society, but not necessarily the poorest in society. Uh, finally, Barra, just uh, very briefly, can I put the point to you that uh, at a time when the cost of fuel is going up, the cost of food is going up, the cost of mortgages is going up, the cost of everything is going up, uh, if one is to apply the trend, is it likely that uh, the rates of poverty in this country are actually going to increase in the years ahead? So it, 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 we have had essentially a tailwind at our back for the last few years. You know, since 2012 or 2014, the recovery has been exceptionally strong and that has kind of boosted incomes at the, at the bottom a lot and that's what's led to these reductions in income inequality and poverty. And I think you're right, there, there is a risk that, you know, we're only looking, we only have data on up to kind of the middle of 2021 and that's when we saw prices start to rise. So I think there is a risk that this kind of progressive broad-based growth that we've seen will get eroded by inflation. And we know that the things that are rising prices most are those that are disproportionately consumed by the lower-income households. So from that point of view, I think, yes, there is a real concern that we might not see the same uh, growth patterns that we have in recent years. 
And, and that's going to make things harder for the government, right? Because then they're going to be facing into a headwind rather than uh, uh, having a tailwind at their back. And that's going to make things more difficult in terms of they're going to have to choose which groups to support and how, and, and not be able to rely on the kind of general okay. uh, lift to income. All right. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Dr. Barra Rowntree, who's an economist with the Economic and Social Research Institute. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, some of you have been in touch arising from our interview with uh, Paul this morning, the taxi driver who was assaulted uh, at the weekend. Sarah was in touch. She said she was shocked listening to Paul's account of his ordeal and says she honestly doesn't know how taxi drivers work in that profession at all. They face dogs abuse on a regular basis. You see it all the time, she says, the poor drivers trying to get drunk people in and out of their cars after a night out. And honestly, it's like watching someone trying to herd sheep. It's chaotic. Drivers shouldn't have to face this kind of behaviour and they shouldn't have to fear for their safety on a daily basis. Frankie was in touch. He says he wouldn't be a taxi driver for love nor money. He couldn't listen to drunk people night after night and deal with their shenanigans. He thinks it would be an idea for all drivers to put cameras in their car in order to record incidents like this and to help protect the drivers in some little way. Yes, very interesting idea there, Frankie. Uh, Rosie was in touch. She thinks that the Gardaí should have a stronger presence on the streets at night time in our time in our towns. If there were a couple of Gardaí patrolling in the hotspots like taxi ranks or outside nightclubs, then this could help reduce incidents of antisocial or disruptive behaviour. A male listener WhatsApped us to say, and people wonder why there are no taxis at night time in our towns. Most taxis won't work after 1am, and who could blame them if this is the kind of rubbish they have to deal with on a regular basis? Mary was in touch. And she was horrified by Paul's story and she worries that we'll only see more of these kind of incidents once the changes to the licensing laws come into force. Surely when people are able to stay in a nightclub till 6am and have access to alcohol until 5am, then we will see cases of disruptive and drunken behaviour increase significantly and that can only spell even more trouble for poor taxi drivers. She doesn't agree with those who are claiming the new laws will help reduce problems like this. This country has an unhealthy relationship with drink and increasing access to it with longer opening hours is not helping. Interesting point Mary and that is something we were trying to if you like explore this week if uh, late opening hours until 4 or 5 or 6 in the morning depending on what time nightclubs opt to close at uh, will determine whether or not people are more drunk, whether they're more abusive or whether in fact uh, there will even be adequate taxis at those hours of the morning to bring people home and finally once again in relation to taxi drivers Matt was in touch he says there is already huge shortages of taxis in many towns around the country and incidents like what happened to Paul will not do anything to encourage people to get into the profession nobody should have to deal with that kind of behaviour when they are simply just trying to earn a living and Matt I agree entirely with you Okay, coming up a little bit later on uh, we'll be talking uh, about the situation in the north as you know the deadline passed overnight to form an executive at Stormont and Well, the DUP have said they're not going to go in and that means they're looking at an election sometime in the middle of December. We'll be discussing that and other issues coming up after the 10 o'clock news. But before all that, we'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, government proposals on working from home are set to be overhauled. It's expected employees' rights to request remote working will be strengthened. A worker's right to appeal the decision to the Workplace Relations Commission is also likely to be enhanced. 
Now, not everybody is happy with this. Maeve McElwee from the employer's body IBEC doesn't believe a one-size-fits-all approach is the best way of dealing with the issue. So, Maeve, what exactly is your concern? Good morning. So I guess some of the challenges that we do have is based on the evidence that we have to date, which is that lots of organisations are really still very much in a test and perfect stage of looking at hybrid and remote and all types of flexible working arrangements. And so, you know, it's it's really been a very short time for some organisations since they returned to um, offices full time, put in place hybrid working plans, and lots of them are still very much at that, as I say, test and perfect stage We've recently done our HR Trends survey for this year, and what we're really beginning to see is that move away from a one-size-fits-all organisational policy where now employers are sort of putting in guiding principles, but actually moving some of those decision-making pieces down to local teams within the business because they are finding huge challenges around how people need to work what works well for particular one team doesn't work for another team or what works well for one individual isn't working well for another individual. So actually those things are devolving down. So when it comes to legislation, we're sort of saying this is really very early in this whole experiment to be deciding on black and white legislative principles that are very hard to flex and that in actual fact a code of practice, for instance, might be much better. Well, I still haven't established what exactly, though, your concern is. Is it the perception by members of IBEC that if somebody is working from home, they might spend an hour or two watching television or reading the paper and they just might not be as productive as they would be if they were in the office? Is that really what it boils down to? No, it doesn't boil down to anything like that at all. In fact, we would have somewhere upwards of um, 70 to 80 percent of member organisations who tell us they're actually looking at introducing remote working it's a very significant piece around their employee retention and engagement and where remote working or hybrid working is impossible they're looking at all kinds of different flexibilities to be able to help people achieve that work-life balance and you know so much emphasis gets placed on trust and whether people are productive or not actually businesses make the decision based on whether it works for the business it works for the team it works for the individual and we assume that productivity happens we know that people can be very productive but you're trying to optimize that and you have to consider within that what's productive for one person mightn't actually be productive for the team and the dynamics of the other people within the team so all of those things need to be considered so that everybody gets the best outcome and often you know the sum of the parts is more important in terms of productivity than one individual and so um, arrangements you know have to be tailored to what the the broader organization needs but i don't think it's it's really around that now having said that there is a real balance that needs to be struck here because while employers are saying to people we're very happy for you to be more flexible and employees are saying well you know i prefer to you know take time off in the middle of the day and work late at night Actually, we're all still bound by that really important piece of legislation, which is the Organisation of Working Time Act. And that sets down really rigorous principles around when you take your breaks, how much rest you must have overnight um, and at the weekends and so on, which is really you know, the underpinning principle for the right to disconnect. So therefore, you know, these flexibilities still have to be managed and that obligation to manage them, to track and record when people work, not just how many hours, but actually when they do that work, still is an obligation for the employer and the absence of having those records is an offence that can be prosecuted through the WRC. So it is a tricky balance between 
you know, trying to have your your staff understand through really good comms that it's not that we don't trust you or don't believe that you're not productive. We actually do have a legal obligation to record the hours that you're working and to make sure that you're getting the rest breaks that you're legally entitled to. Okay, I get the impression from what you're saying that people in IBEC, uh, maybe distrust is the wrong word, but I get the impression that you feel that if more and more people are allowed to work from home, uh, that they may abuse what they're entitled to in the office. In other words, they may take more breaks than they're supposed to, the breaks may even be longer, and that they may not be as productive, and that uh, a supervisor or a manager isn't there to look over their shoulders to ensure that they are working and earning their salary. Is that the case? That's absolutely not the case. In fact, that's completely the opposite of what IBEC is saying here. IBEC and our member employers are very positively disposed towards remote working and hybrid working. And good employers don't have an issue of trust around productivity um, necessarily. All I'm trying to highlight is the fact that when you know that there is a balance that people need to understand that it's not about the trust, it's about the legal obligation to record times. And actually what employers are doing is trying to build that flexibility in for people. So, But there are lots of issues that we are highlighting in the development of legislation that employers will need to have clarity on to be able to facilitate the remote and hybrid working. So there, you know, there are those issues around occupational health and safety. There are going to be issues around managing data protection and data security for clients of organisations and service users of organisations um, you know, and, and where those responsibilities begin and end when somebody is in a remote environment that an employer may not be able to manage, um, particularly that, that physical location. But those are things that can be addressed. I suppose our only difficulty with legislation at this point in time, Ken, is around um, saying that we're really very early days in this. So two years of pandemic when people who could work remotely were working remotely, but everybody was working in the same way. What we've started to understand very clearly is hybrid is an entirely different way of working. And that actually, before we would go down a legislation route, that actually might be better to test and perfect those systems, see what's working, look at that flexibility. But just to emphasise, employers are absolutely moving towards this. This is um, this is a, a way of working that is here to stay. And the question is really about how to make that work the best and how to introduce it in a way that works for the business and works for their employees. Well, on that very point, uh, during the uh, the COVID period where working from home became, if you like, more common practice, uh, certainly in areas where people have access uh, to broadband and the internet and so on, have any of your members uh, found that productivity increased or decreased? Um, I, I think the results to some degree are probably a little bit mixed around that. So, of course, it, it's very difficult to measure productivity during an emergency situation because some businesses will be in a position to react very quickly to an emergency, others won't, um, and some will have had the technology and the training and the experience to measure it. So I think what most employers would say over the course of the pandemic is that everybody worked to their to their best endeavours to make sure that service could be delivered. And we worked around issues like poor connectivity when it arose or the fact that lots of Parents and carers had additional responsibilities in the home that they wouldn't previously have had. So it's probably not the best measure of productivity. And that, again, is something we're still learning how to do. How do we measure it? Particularly when lots of managers... 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And employees have not yet had an adequate opportunity to really have good training in how we measure it, how we deliver, how we engage with it. So when it comes to performance management, both employees and employers to be able to, and managers, I should say, to be able to engage on, well, this is what I'm doing, this is how I can do it, this is what I need to do it better. So those are all the learnings that we need to have. Um, and you know, then to be able to track productivity a little better. But so there are certainly employers who said to us during the pandemic, we're actually slightly concerned about the level of productivity that's coming through because we think people are you know, not actually taking their breaks. And others who knew that on the basis of just the very nature of the work that people were trying to do from home, it wasn't as productive because it wasn't set up to be. So we, we have that transition period now where we can test and perfect some of those systems to make it better. I understand that, well, issues of tension have arisen between some workers and employers where some workers are saying, well, it suits me to work from home because I have a young child and the cost of childcare is ridiculous and I can deliver the goods from home. And some employers are being a little bit bulgy about it, saying, well, you have to show up at the office because that's the nature of your employment. I mean, where that scenario arises, uh, what would be the ideal compromise uh, for, for members of IBEC um, who want to get the job done, but at the same time they want to get the last drop of sweat out of their employee? Well, I think first and foremost, I'd say you know, an employer who's trying to get the last drop of sweat out of an employee um, is probably not really thinking long-term about your long-term relationship and engagement and well-being of people, and that tends not to be a very positive relationship. The other point that I think it's really important to make is that remote working is not a substitute for childcare. So if you are working either fully remote or in a hybrid or flexible working arrangement, that does not substitute for your childcare costs, although I would absolutely appreciate it might take a lot of time out of a commute and so give you more time back between dropping a child and picking a child up or um, another dependent that you have responsibilities for. So that's really important to recognise But if it's the case that your job can only be done on site, if you're working in a a care environment, if you're working in a production facility, 
you know, I think the, the, the progressive conversation then to have is, are there other flexibilities that the employer can look at? Are there shift changes that might help to alleviate some of the burden on somebody? Are there, you know, are there other start and, and finish times that might help take some of the, the pressure out of the day? So there are lots of other options that we know that employers consider when they're looking at some of these challenges. But there is a reality where, like it's somewhere in the region of about two thirds of our workforce are people who have to go out to work on a daily basis and have to perform their roles on site in the the area where they deliver their work. And, and that just can't be avoided. So, you know, you can't be a barista okay. in a coffee bar working remotely. And that's, that's really important to recognise because we put so much emphasis on this whole area of hybrid and remote working. But actually, there's a huge proportion of our labour market for whom this isn't even an issue at all. They have to go all out right. to work. Um, and that, that's, you know, something that we need to consider. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That's obviously uh, a trend in the workplace that's evolving and we'll see how things play out in the months and years ahead. That's Maeve McElwee there, Executive Director of Employer Relations with IBEC. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yes, this is Ken Murray sitting in for Michael Reed. Michael Reed will be back with you next week. Now, as you probably heard, overnight a particular and important deadline passed, and as a result of the DUP in the North failing to sit in the Assembly that was elected back in May, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is likely to announce today that a new election to the Stormont Assembly will take place probably in the middle of December. December. One man who uh, is very much in touch with what's happening on the ground in the north is Dr. Brian Feeney, a former lecturer in history at St. Mary's College in Belfast and a columnist with the Irish News newspaper, which sells to the Catholic community. Uh, Dr. Feeney, thanks uh, very much indeed uh, for joining us on the line. I was making the point that we had an assembly election there in May and uh, the DUP are refusing to sit. And then we're looking at another assembly election in the December and the likelihood is that the outcome will be the same and the likelihood is that the DUP will still refuse uh, to sit in the Assembly. So is there any point? Um, most people think there isn't. Um, however, there is this point that the Assembly collapsed last night. Uh, there are no ministers at all now. There were ministers were in a caretaking capacity since May, uh, but there aren't any ministers at all now, so the civil servants are taking over. And if there's nothing done and there's no election, then it's, it becomes a state of limbo and goes on for months. There will be no politics. And that raises a serious question of what you put in its place. Um, so at least an election campaign means that people will be kicking the issues around again, and it will also puts it up to both governments to come up with some way of running the North, uh, because failure to do anything means, as I say, it's it's just uh, goes from month to month in, in a limbo situation. And the civil servants can only spend 90% of the budget that's available. They can't bring in new policies. And it's just, it's just taking over. And there is really... Uh, same as everywhere, uh, north and south, a cost of living crisis, inflation, fuel, energy prices going up. Um, and the civil servants are not, not able to take decisions about that. 
Brian, I last interviewed you back in May outside Bia on the Falls Road uh, for Euronews and we were discussing Act Nagelga. Uh, that has now been, uh, if you like, passed in the House of Commons. Uh, the census has been published. The Catholics are now the majority. And as it is, Sinn Féin won the most seats uh, in the Assembly election back in May. This this difficulty that the DUP finds itself in, uh, is it really to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol or is there a hard line within the DUP that just cannot accept that nationalists are now on top? Well, yes, indeed. I mean, it is, it is an issue for them. Actually, Jeffrey Donaldson himself said that uh, having a Sinn Féin first minister would present a difficulty. Um, and a lot of people are wondering whether or not Jeffrey Donaldson actually wants a second election so that he can have another bite at the cherry because in May, uh, Jim Allister's hardline TUV party took 50,000 votes off the DUP. Uh, many people think uh, Jeffrey uh, Donaldson wants to have another go so that he can overtake uh, Sinn Féin and get back to be uh, a DUP first minister. Uh, then the, it would, that would answer the question then whether he would go into an executive or whether he would still say the most important obstacle is uh, the protocol. Um, Peter Hayne was on uh, BBC Northern Ireland during the week. Uh, he was making the point that one thing that might focus the minds, I should point out that Peter Hayne is a former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, but he was making the point that uh, if the salaries were removed from the elected MLAs, that might focus the minds. Do you agree? Um, no. I mean, first of all, the Assembly has in effect collapsed and there are no ministers. And if there's an election called, there'll be no MLAs. So they, they won't get salaries until there is a, a new election. Um, the real danger with that proposal, uh, withdrawing salaries, running everything down, is that you you are in danger of abolishing politics in the North because if there's no Assembly, no ministers, no salaries, no nothing... Um, no one's going to stand for any kind of an election uh, because that's the sort of thing that was happening in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, people just walked away from politics because there was no uh, there was no assembly, councils, councillors went paid. So the calibre of politicians deteriorated pretty seriously. Um, I did an interview or did a report last year about Brexit one year on from the deal that the UK did uh, with Brussels and um, I must have stopped about 10 people outside City Hall in Belfast and I asked them if the Northern Ireland Protocol had in any way adversely affected their daily lives and if I interviewed 10 they all said no, there's nobody out marching on the streets nobody particularly cares trade between the North and the South is up 60% trade between the South and the North North is up 47%. Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds in that it's in the UK, but it's still technically in the EU. Isn't all this uh, guff about the Northern Ireland Protocol just nonsense from the DUP? Yes, it is. I mean, they're peddling peddling the lie that affects the constitutional position of 
Northern Ireland in the UK, which it doesn't. In fact, the first clause of a protocol says nothing in this protocol does anything uh, to in any way affect the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. Um, but they've, they've got themselves in a, a real twist about this. Uh, there's another aspect to this, and that's to what extent the hardline European research group on the right of the Conservative Party is using the DUP and has used the DUP as a lever against the European Union. Because these guys in the ERG, they are obsessed with the notion of British sovereignty, about breaking free of Europe. Um, and their big uh, issue is that the European Court of Justice still has a role in the north of Ireland in dealing with VAT and um, changes in standards from the European Union. And they say that the ECG, ECJ should have no role in the north of Ireland. And they have been egging on the DUP since 2021, meeting them, meeting loyalists, meeting paramilitaries. And in fact, in an answer to uh, the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee uh, earlier this week, Assistant Chief Constable said that some of the paramilitaries, uh, some of the rallies were involved, were organised by paramilitaries. These are rallies that were attended by the DUP and the TUV. So it's a, it's a bit like uh, dogs and lampposts. Um, is the Conservative Party using the DUP or the DUP using the Conservative Party? Uh, the Loyalist Community Council, the LCC, it's a group that represents Loyalist paramilitaries. Indeed, one might ask why Loyalist paramilitaries are still allowed to be in existence, but that sounds like a debate for another day. We all thought the UVF was gone, but it's warning of dire consequences if joint authority with Dublin was to be imposed. And it's also warning Irish government ministers not to be visiting Northern Ireland while the protocol remains. I mean, is this just guff or are they really serious? Well, it isn't just uh, Simon Coveney, uh, who uh, was making a speech in Ardoin in March this year. Uh, the uh, the UVF organised a hoax bomb attack. It was a van driven into the car park, a place where he was speaking, and he had to be evacuated from it. Um, in June this year, a prominent loyalist, well-known UVF leader in the Shankill was arrested uh, and charged with possession of weapons. Um, so there is there are these sort of little warm winds blowing around, but there's nothing on the streets or anywhere else that there will be any kind of serious organised violence. It's simply to keep the pressure on uh, the British government to do something about the protocol. And in the past, they have warned, uh, particularly Ian Radker and Simon Coveney, to keep out of the north and so on. Um, but at the moment, uh, the police and MI5 have complete tabs on the Loyalist Community Council, UVF, uh, UEA. Um, they're not a real threat. Uh, Rishi Sunak is now the top man in London and he voted for Brexit. So uh, are we expecting a scenario whereby if he is to uh, act on his principles that the Northern Ireland protocol will go? And then that that begs the next question, then where would the trade border actually be? Well, all the indications are that Sunak is pretty pragmatic despite his protestations in favour of Brexit and so on. 
in his speech in Darling Street when he became Prime Minister, he, he said, uh, and I quote him, that, that Britain faces a profound financial and economic crisis. And the last thing that Sunak can afford is a trade war or any more trade sanctions with the EU. Uh, I mean, this trust drives the British economy. The indications are there's a black hole of £50 billion pounds and they've got to find some way to fill that. One of the ways they have to manage is to borrow money on a monthly basis. All governments do that. But the price of borrowing has gone up for the British cannot afford to get involved in a trade war or trade sanctions with the EU because the pound will go down and the sure. cost of government borrowing will come up. Just one final question, Brian, before I let you go. Um, nobody likes uh, canvassing and knocking on doors in the middle of December, particularly in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Um, if if one is to gauge, you know, Vox Pops on the BBC and UTV about the cost of living, um, are politicians going to get it in the neck, or will yeah. will, will will loyalists or sorry unionists and and nationalists just remain loyal to their particular tribe? Broadly speaking, they will remain loyal, but certainly most people are saying they wouldn't like to be a DUP canvasser knocking on a door uh, where people aren't able to put the heat on in that house. Okay, well, we'll see how it all plays out over the next uh, number of weeks, and we're expecting that decision to be made uh, today on the date of the election. That's uh, Dr. Brian Feeney, columnist with the Irish News newspaper in Belfast, uh, joining us on the line. More to come, we'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Regarding taxi drivers, a listener in Navin was in contact to say, Ken, the only good thing that will come out of the extended club hours is that it will be easier for Garthi to recognise the culprits of antisocial behaviour and assaults. I doubt if taxi drivers will want to be exposed to the madness that this will bring and our A&E departments will be run off their feet. Shame on Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar for signing off on this madness. There are far more important things that should be dealt with first. That's a comment there in relation to plans to allow nightclubs to open up till 6am at the latest. Now, uh, the Coalition Against Hate Crime Ireland welcomes the announcement that the Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill uh, 2022 is being published. They say that they've been calling for this legislation for many years and the clarity it will provide to victims of hate crimes, offenders and criminal justice actors is long overdue. Luna Lara Laboni, Chair of the Coalition Against Hate Crime Ireland joins me on the line right now. Uh, First of all, in terms of existing hate, uh, how bad is the situation in Ireland? Hi, good morning. Good morning, Ken. Uh, The situation is bad, uh, and the situation is the fact that hate crime happens in Ireland and we are not uh, equipped with hate crime legislation. Uh, What is interesting is that um, unlikely to probably common uh, perception, Ireland does not have any piece of legislation protecting communities from hate crime. And that's why we're really welcoming the progression of the bureaucracy at the moment. Well, why has it become an issue? Is it because, and I, I want to be very sensitive with this question, there's been a, a huge influx of um, 
uh, immigrants into this country? Is it that LGBT issues are more prevalent in our society? Is it that people have become more arrogant as they get more confident, as they get more educated? What are the underlying factors? Uh, what I would focus on, Ken, is is really on what hate crimes is. Uh, so let's take a step back, okay? So what a hate crime is is a is a criminal act, okay, an offence which is assault, which is motivated, okay, by a bias, uh, so a prejudice towards a whole community. So instead, let's say, on 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 focusing on on why it's happening, what we can focus on is the fact that communities are really struggling with hate crime. And hate crime has always existed. What uh, is happening is that hate crime is now emerging. So uh, we're slowly equipping ourselves with reporting mechanisms so people can report uh, the crimes that are happening. But a lot of uh, crimes, hate crimes, of hate incidents, of these episodes, are still hidden. Um, how much has the emergence of social media, um, if you like, assisted the emergence of hate? Because the the downside of social media is it allows every nutter in the place uh, to get online and say negative and hateful things. And this then fuels a culture of hatred. Has social media, if you like, questions to answer about the emergence of hate in our society? Um, Social media definitely have a role as any uh, public space, let's say, that we we inhabit. Uh, Social media is not the problem. The, The problem is how we use the space that we inhabit. So um, we're talking, like right now we're moving, uh, as you're saying, to, to a sphere of, of speech. And just to be extremely clear, what this legislation is doing uh, is to address only the extreme forms of hate speech. So the speech that uh, causes, that motivates, uh, sorry, that um, incites acts of violence. So I would be extremely cautious in, in, in talking, let's say, about speech in this context. But we, what we have seen, for example, is that incitement to hatred is extremely linked to hate crimes. And in fact, like, the, this question is extremely, like, extremely linked to the work that we're doing as a coalition. Because what we're calling for as a coalition is, of course, for the legislation to be introduced as soon as possible because we need to equip ourselves with a legislative framework, but also to tackle the um, roots of hate. And this is only possible by going beyond criminalization. Criminalization is a matter of last resort. What we need is, for example, a national action plan that addresses the prevention of incidents and crimes from happening to education, to awareness raising, to monitoring, and so on. Yeah. Um, You've welcomed the publication of the bill. And as you've mentioned in a previous answer, this effectively is the first legislation, uh, proposed legislation of its kind, because we haven't had hate legislation in this country. But you also have expressed concerns that, for example, no representatives from the likes of the LGBTI plus uh, group or indeed disabled people were invited to participate in pre-legislative scrutiny. Uh, how serious of uh, of an oversight is that by the government? Well, um, 
we we go back from the process to the process sorry of this whole legislation this legislation originally the aim of this legislation was to review the 1989 uh, act so the existing provision of incitement to hatred the incitement to hatred provision exists in Ireland they are outdated so uh, as hate crime legislation is so needed at that stage and that's where the oversight happens uh, the consultation only happens on hate speech, on the hate speech element, but then uh, the Department of Justice, of Justice started legislating on hate crime and hate speech together. And we've been disappointed considering that that was the premise that at the pre-legislative scrutiny that is now over, um, very few members of impacted communities have been invited. And you see uh, hate crime impacts communities in a very different way, and that's why all communities need to sit at uh, at the table to, to make sure that this is the best legislation that we have, but also that we equip ourselves with all the implementation measures that are needed to make it function, to make it clear, to make it consistent, and to make it effective on a long term. What we're aiming at is really to change society. Um, and and that's why we really need a better engagement. And we're also calling for um, not not having oversight uh, in terms of getting the legislation itself right. So we're calling government on ensuring that the bill complies with international human rights standards. And you see, hate crime legislation is a very complex piece of legislation where we also need to balance freedom of expression, principles of proportionality and and necessity. Uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties in its press release says that hate crimes send minorities the message they are not welcome in Ireland. I was reading your LinkedIn page this morning. I, I think I'm right in saying that you're of uh, Italian um, heritage. Uh, what has been your experience living in Ireland? Are we a nice welcoming lot or are there elements of hatred out there that do make, uh, if you like, visitors to this country feel unwelcome? Yeah, I think it doesn't come as a surprise when you talk to me that I'm from Italy, considering my my accent probably. But uh, listen, I, I live in Dublin, okay? I live in Dublin and I, I enjoy, I love Ireland. And as a member, uh, more than my, let's say, uh, uh, nationality is more myself and here in person. I'm talking on a personal capacity as sure. I've already previously talked on a personal capacity. I'm a lesbian woman myself. And I've struggled with hate incidents in, in Ireland. So uh, I have a lived experience. Uh, many people have a lived experience. We know how bad the situation is. And we know that, honestly, this is not the Ireland that we want to live in. And we want to change it. Sure. Sure. But what I'm trying to establish here is that uh, from talking to minority groups that have visited here or actually live here and that have come here from other countries, do they find Ireland a welcoming country or is there an underlying um, atmosphere of hate or dislike towards people coming here? What has been the experience that either you've gone through personally or have you experienced it or are you getting any feedback from uh, foreign nationals that when they come in here they're not welcome? Um, honestly, I cannot speak on behalf of anyone else when it comes to lived experience, right? So I will speak to myself. The perception is there is that there is a rise in, in um, prejudice and hate towards minoritized communities. And that's why this legislation is 
extremely, extremely timely. And you see, like, uh, hate crime, hate crimes, when they're committed, they send a message, right, to, to the victims that they're not welcome. And that's what we're doing. We're reclaiming our, our space as minoritized communities, but also as all the people that believe in, in, in dignity and equality, uh, in, in changing the, the country, also on, on the basis of the values that are the existing values of Ireland, the foundations of this country. All right. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Luna Lara Leboni, who is chair of the Coalition Against Hate Crime Ireland. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may or may not know that something like 150,000 couples cohabit in this country, 75,000 of which have children. And while it's becoming, if you like, a social norm that uh, uh, couples move in with each other and uh, they live together, they see if it works out, and then they decide to get married. But once they cohabit, uh, they find themselves in a sort of a legal grey area. Their status in relation to tax, their station uh, status in relation to uh, welfare provision can be somewhat different to married couples. And this is an area that uh, the Labour Party uh, wants reformed. Labour Senator Mark Wall from County Kildare is joining me on the line right now. First of all, uh, Mark, could you just outline... Um, how cohabiting couples uh, differ in terms of their status compared to married couples. Yes, good morning, Ken, and thank you very much for having me on. Cohabiting couples, Ken, unfortunately, and this bill is specifically in relation to uh, surviving cohabitants' pension bill, it's specifically in relation to the widow and widower's contributory pension. And unfortunately, if you're a cohabiting couple, and, and again, saying the word unfortunately, one partner dies, the, the surviving partner will not be entitled to a widow's or widower's contributory pension. You also mentioned in your introduction that uh, 75,000 of the cohabiting couples actually have children. They will also lose out on a secondary benefit of €8,000 from a bereavement grant uh, if they are a cohabiting couple. So that's what this bill sought to address. Um, You know, it's not fair. Ireland is changing. Uh, the whole social dynamic of marriage is changing as well. So we set out as the Labour Party to address this by bringing in this bill. Uh, But they are the differences. And I suppose it's important to say as well, and many of your listeners will know this, that if you are cohabiting in certain social welfare payments, for example, job seekers, or cares allowance, then you will be assessed as a cohabiting couple. So there are the differences, there are anomalies, and this is one that we wanted to address. OK, let me be the devil's advocate here, as the saying goes. Uh, if you are married, you have uh, the marriage cert. You can go into the welfare office and you can say, uh, my name is Johnny and I am married to Mary, and here's the proof. Now, where cohabiting couples uh, are living in a house and have children, uh, this can become, as I say, a bit of a grey area because, uh, for example, if somebody is living with a partner and the relationship breaks down, but it might, if you like, resurrect itself. How does one legally define that scenario? Or what about a scenario uh, whereby, for example, uh, we have situations, and I'm, I'm going to say this because I, 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 a guard had put this to me, that one or two, uh, one or two couples, for example, um, deliberately separate uh, and move in with somebody else but it's done intentionally to try and maximise the welfare scam. It's a grey area but it does exist. What I'm trying to say is how do you define what is a definitive cohabiting couple? 
Well, this is something that is uh, there's already definition there for those two payments as, as, as well, Ken. But, but, but what we're saying here with our bill is that this will be teased out as we go. The, the reason we brought forward this bill in the first place, it came from a gentleman in County Tipperary, Johnny O'Mara, who was with his partner for 20 years. Unfortunately, his partner, Michelle, passed away in January 2021. So as, as in the discussion and debate that we had with the minister, we, we, we agreed with her that, you know, that, that that needs to be defined. There are social welfare inspectors that will go through uh, various issues with, with a person when they are actually making an application. So that will be defined as the bill was to progress. But the majority of cases that we've dealt with, and, and there have been so many from right around the country, and I know Deputy Jed Nash has mentioned a number in, in your own area as well, you know, that, that there, there are long-term commitments. And it's really, really unfortunate that that, that has, has come to pass for, for these particular couples. So the definitions will come with the bill. Um, you know, and it's already existing there, and that's what will be worked through as the bill goes through. But the vast majority of cases we're currently dealing with are people who are in very long-term relationships, but just haven't, for various reasons, got around to officially, as you say, get that marriage certificate. Um, my memory tells me that when Dermot O'Hearn was the Minister for Justice, uh, there was legislation passed uh, whereby uh, if a, a couple, and I think this applied to, more so to gay people than heterosexual people, that if they were living together beyond a certain period, yeah. uh, there was, if you like, joint ownership of the property on the basis that uh, even though one person purchased the property, the other person was contributing to the mortgage, and that gave the second person sort of equal rights. Uh, would it not be logical if we had a situation in this country that if you have a cohabiting couple, just say a man and a woman, yeah. that if they got engaged, even though they're not married, but if they had a cert to prove engagement, that that would be some sort of legal proof that they are uh, in a definitive relationship and that would give them some sort of legal status? Again, I'm saying, uh, Ken, that this needs to be worked out. Unfortunately, in circumstances, and there's some tragic cases, heartbreaking cases that we've heard about here where there hasn't been time, unfortunately, to do that. A lot of cohabiting couples end up actually taking their, their church vows, which obviously are not good enough uh, for, for, for space, uh, etc. But, the, you know, time comes against them just in those last couple of days, etc. So we have to be careful and conscious of that. And most of those people that I've spoken to have been, again, in long-term relationships. But that's the detail, and you're asking probably about the finite detail that needs to be worked through in the bill. What we're seeing more and more as we talk to, to your own radio station and other radio stations is that there are a lot of people who've gone through this. So we need to put something in place. This bill will start that process. Uh, the minister suggested that it needs to go to the Gender Equality Committee, who actually met yesterday with the Department of Social Protection, as it turns out, and there was a discussion around that. So it seems to me that there is going to be a discussion here, and that finite detail that you're talking about, which is necessary for this bill, will be worked through, and, and we look forward to that. But we just can't not have something in there for, for cohabiting couples. It's unfair, and it needs to change at this stage. Uh, do you have any concerns that uh, where, I think I touched on this earlier on, that where you have a cohabiting couple and the relationship breaks down and uh, the two individuals in the couple then become single, uh, that they may actually continue to enjoy the benefits of a cohabiting relationship when it comes to welfare provision? Well, there are already there are already uh, issues in relation to that, Ken, and as, as we know that there is there are social welfare inspectors continuing to investigate that. 
What we want to address is, are those long-term relationships, you know, in fairness. There, there will have to be uh, part of the bill as it's worked through the Houses of the Rock just to address what, exactly what you're saying at the moment. And, you know, the Minister referenced that in her speech the other night. But we're more concerned about those people who've sure. been in long-term relationships. That's what we want to address. And, you know, like when you listen to, the, to those stories of people who've been in 5, 10, 15, 20 and, and plus relationships and, and they're struggling now with children, that's where we need to go with this. And then we can address all the other issues, which are important, don't get me wrong, but we really need to look after those families that have been in those long-term commitments. Okay, well, it sounds like a, a grey area of Irish law that certainly needs to be updated to address uh, what is the emerging new Irish family. Okay, Ma- uh, Mark Wall on the line there from uh, Kildare. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. And that just about wraps it up, not only for today, but indeed uh, for this week. I want to thank Maggie Maguire, who produced. Chris Murray was on sound. Sinead Brazel is next. I'm Ken Murray. And until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.